0: Do we have such a volunteer? And if not, then I am going to ask Tim. I, sorry, I never saw you. Yeah. All right, so we're starting a new chapter. We are now on chapter 10, which is on page 27, and this is about effectual calling, Um, and effectual calling is just a way of talking about what starts to happen inside us uh, as the conversion process is started, okay, Um, so I'm going to maybe make a, a distinction at the front end here to help frame where this belongs and hopefully it'll start to make more sense as we go along. We sometimes talk about the gospel call um, and there's two ways in which we want to think about the gospel call. One is what's called the external call which is simply a call of the gospel that all people can hear. Every man, woman, and child can hear Billy Graham on TV uh, talking about the importance of coming to know Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, So that is the external call. Everybody has the ability to hear the gospel. Everyone has the ability to understand the content of the gospel. Uh, Everybody is forced with a decision and a choice to make when they hear uh, the gospel. That is the external call. But then what happens for some, and not for all, is... The internal call, where some people can brush it off, they don't care, they understand what's happening, but they just frankly don't care, but for some, all of a sudden things start to happen inside, and there's a churning, and there's a thinking, and and there's an awareness of sin, and there's an awareness that your guilt needs to be covered, and that you need to come to Christ, and that's what's called the internal call, an internal calling where the heart... uh, is showing signs of newness, and that is what effectual calling is. Effectual means it's, it's effective. It's happening. This call is is going to do that which it was intended to do. It's effective, 100 uh, percent of the time. Um, and so, well, I'll start. Can you see the difference between an internal and an external call? Okay, okay, everyone, even people that cuss God into the grave, can hear the gospel. They know the content, okay? They just don't care. Or worse, they hate it, okay? And some are softened by it. So, chapter 10, section 1, page 27. In God's appointed and acceptable time, he is pleased to call effectually, and then there's a little footnote there. Well, we'll get to that in a bit here. He is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit, those he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good, and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. Okay? And we've talked plenty about that in uh, in previous chapters. This language, you'll soon find out about taking out a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh comes from Ezekiel. And that was the word picture well, one of probably several along the way, that did it for me, that this isn't cold and robotic. This, that's the, the scriptural picture that clicked for me that we're, uh, we're always doing what we want. Freedom is not constrained here. We're doing what we want. But if I have a new heart, I'll want new things. Uh, I was on a road trip probably about five or six years ago uh, with another gentleman I used to minister with previously uh, and we were talking about these things, and I just used this language of taking out a heart of stone and a heart of flesh. And he said, that's from Ezekiel, right? I said, yeah. That makes total sense. This all makes sense now. <laughs> okay. so, and sometimes it just, it, these biblical word pictures just, uh, just click. Okay? But we'll get to that uh, in due time. So let's look at uh, the text here in support of footnote number one. So and that is this: in God's appointed and acceptable time, He is pleased to call effectually. Okay, pleased to call effectually. Does someone want to take Romans eight verse thirty? Who wants to take that? Keith will take Romans eight thirty. Who wants to take Romans eleven seven? Jeremy, Ephesians one ten uh, and eleven. Inga. 2 Thessalonians two thirteen and 14. Then I'm going to ask... Oh, Evangeline. Okay. And I'll, I, saw, I think, was that Karen I saw in the back there? I'll get you next, next round then. Okay. So this is in support of this notion that at God's acceptable time, he is pleased to effectually call people. Romans 8.30. Go ahead. All right. Keith, does that sound like a series of events? Does it sound like a chain of events? Does it sound like things break down partway through? No. Okay. These nominals fall necessarily one after the other. Okay. Uh, this is an organic process. One, then the next, then the next, then the next. Okay. <coughs> Let's keep going here. Romans 11, verse 7. Who had that? Jeremy, right? Yep. Okay. Jeremy, what did you just read? What's that? Okay, well, that, you, yeah, that would be correct. <laughs> you, you did read what you did, in fact, read. Yeah. Yes. But Israel was seeking God, but those who were elect and the rest were That's right. So Israel's a mixed multitude, right? Of true believers and false professors. And sadly, so are, to some degree the people of God today is a mixed multitude, okay? There's false professors in the church, okay? Uh, there, and there's true believers in the church, okay? And of society generally, this is the case, okay? Uh, so some receive it by faith, and the rest are hardened, okay? And again, hardening is not uh, God planting evil in someone's heart so they reject him. God, hardening is God leaving people in their default state, God, hardening is God taking his hands off the lever completely, or just feeding out a little more rope to just be more like yourself, and the more rope he gives you, the more freedom you have, the more freedom you have, the more hard you become, okay? So uh, this has always been the case, that those, there's, there's those who come in genuine repentant faith and those uh, who don't. Ephesians one, ten and eleven. Who wants to t- uh, who had that? Enga.
1: Okay.
0: So again this is to break this down into bite-sized pieces. All of this happens in Christ. So none of this is just a cold, robotic, mechanical, impersonal you know forces of fate just grinding away. This is personal. This happens in Christ. So union with Christ is part of this. So it's because we've been grafted into Christ that we obtain an inheritance. And it's because we have been grafted into Christ... Uh, that we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things accordance, uh, according to the counsel of his will. Okay? <clears throat> so this is, this is personal, this is in connection with Christ, and we see here that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything. Okay? So there's not loose ends of history that are uh, meaningless, There may be loose ends that mean you don't understand, but all things are working to the good, ultimately, of God's people, and to his ultimate glory. So far, so good. Questions? Discussion? Plain as clear as mud? This is straightforward? I mean, a lot of this, you'll start to notice a lot of these concepts are building on things that have already been gone through. So, we're dealing less and less with brand new concepts and more with making application in a certain uh, progress. Okay, So all things are working to uh, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that is to bring in the fullness of his people with time. Uh, and then Second Thessalonians, who had that? Evangeline, that's right, there we go. okay very good so you see this is good news for the church and paul is uh, coming out with joys we ought to always give thanks brothers and sisters and what's the basis of this joy what's the basis of this happiness that paul has for the church because god chose you okay this is good news this isn't some obscure christian doctrine to be ashamed of this is good news God chose you guys, okay? You have an inheritance that can't be shaken. God is pleased to give you uh, the fullness of his inheritance to bring you all the way home. So this is good news, okay? And you're the first fruits, so you're at the beginning of church history here to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, okay? So again, this isn't cold and mechanical because what is the immediate effect of someone being called out by God? They remain unchanged, right? Right? They can just keep on sinning, right? That's how my grade 8 social studies explained it to me, that the theology of the Reformation was it, uh, was just for people who wanted to live like the devil and say they were Christians. That's what free grace means. Or our herdsman Stu's uh, uncle, who told him when he found reformational theology, well, that's just for guys who want to drink beer and feel up loose women. No, all right, <laughs> okay. Uh, that is such... Uh, If that happens, the people engaged in that clearly don't understand what free grace means. Uh, And people who caricature Christians that way also have an inadequate understanding. Because grace gets to work. Grace doesn't just stay parked in the garage. Grace does stuff. Grace grips a hold of your heart and starts killing sin. And it starts growing in the fruit of righteousness. And if it's not doing that, We honestly have to ask if grace is present. Maybe you're just going through the motions with your mouth. Okay? Grace gets to work. Grace uh, saves through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So, do you see that? Belief in the truth is a fruit of this free grace. Okay? As is sanctification. Okay? These are necessary steps uh, of grace working through. Can we see, or maybe we've struggled with this ourselves, I'm going to open it up here, that the offer of free grace, if grace is actually this free, if grace is actually this amazing, that people will either abuse it or be charged with abusing it? Have you seen that? Either one? Have you seen people abusing free grace? Using it as an excuse to sin? Okay, I've seen it. Have you seen people unfairly charge genuine Christians with, well, that's dangerous. If you start preaching that way, that's going to be dangerous. If you're gonna, you're, you better preach in such a way that people are scared of losing their salvation. Okay? But here's the problem with that. If the Spirit is at work, we can trust that the Spirit will produce that fruit. Because what were the allegations against the apostolic preaching? The objections were, if you preach that way, people are going to abuse it. And Paul says, yeah, you're right. Yep. Yes, that's correct. And I am happy to live with that. God will sort it out. Okay? I would rather preach a, a full 90-proof gospel and have people misunderstand and abuse it than to cut everyone off from the words of life, okay? which is free grace. If we're preaching free grace, some people are going to misunderstand, some people are going to abuse it, but we can trust humbly that the Spirit will not let it drop to the ground in those who are truly saved. Okay? Those who are truly saved will not use grace as an excuse to go on sinning. It's going to get to work like it does in the Thessalonian church here. We can have confidence in that. We don't need to be scared of it. Okay? Discussion on that. I feel like there might be something there. Maybe not. Yeah, that's how James is using it. Yes. So a faith that doesn't get to work is not saving faith. It's just a profession with your mouth. Living faith is alive. Living faith does stuff. Living faith starts killing sin. Okay? That's right. James is talking about a dead faith, a mere profession with your mouth that doesn't get to work uh, in the real world, growing in grace, growing in fruit, yeah. And is that a problem today? Do we have Christians who profess Christ with their mouth, and and we don't see anything? There's not life there? So what do we do about that? What do we do about that? Because it's very discouraging, isn't it? See people profess Christ with their mouth and it's like nothing happened inside. What do we do with that? Pray. <laughs> yes, absolutely we pray for them. Yep. And what can we do? We, we can present the gospel, we can give it, we can say you're misunderstanding what grace is, but eventually we have to trust in the Spirit's purposes for that person that this will at some point grab some traction and start, uh, start moving. But do we change the gospel presentation because we're scared of what might happen? No. No. If that's their attitude... Probably, I think you're right, probably you'll detect the heart behind that, right? In conversation, if that's an excuse to say, well, I, I, I'm just hiding behind this because I have no desire to come. Or if that is maybe truly a softened person that needs to understand, okay, what, what next? What do I need to do now, right? Uh, what's happening inside me? What's the Holy Spirit doing in, in here? So I, I think the same question could come up from a an indifferent person or a softened person, I would think. I don't know how those conversations have gone for you, but I could I could picture that it could be either one of those things. Yeah, I think so, yeah. No, and if it's coming like that, I would say that is a sign of opposition to God. That's, it's an excuse for me being perfectly content in my life of sin. Yeah. If it's being said like that, I would be concerned about the state of that person. I wouldn't think that they're starting to catch on to grace. I think they're intentionally misunderstanding grace. Julian. Right, and yeah, and that's probably a fair point. What Jolyne is saying is what she probably sees more of or has seen more of is as it's not culturally expected for people to be Christians anymore, that the insincere professors just walk away completely, right? And the sincere ones carry on. And that can happen in different forms. I mean, here, this is Mennonite country, right? So it's still there is still a certain expectation that if you have a low German last name, you're probably a Christian and you're expected to live according to a certain manner, right? But that's quickly changing, right? That's, that's very quickly changing um, where people don't have that expectation. So a benefit of that is there's less false professors probably in the church than there was 50 or 100 years ago. That's probably true. The downside is those cultural forms that help, Christians obey better, and I'm going to talk about that this morning. Uh, no one is ever going to be justified or truly observe Sabbath because there's Sabbath laws on the books in the province of Manitoba. However, those laws were very, very good. They were very good because they helped make it seem natural that Sunday is a day of worship. They helped train God's people. right? Those, so those customs can be helpful. Okay, We've gone from... You know, when I was in hockey, if someone would have said, yeah, we've got a hockey game in Bosshire at 10 a.m. on Sunday, that person would have felt embarrassed, and they should have. You should feel shame if you're doing that. And that's gone. The good side is, less false professors in the church. The downside is, it's harder for Christians to obey <laughs> when the whole world is just running in the exact opposite direction. Right? So that, Tina... So, where do you think the breakdown is? That no one's talked to them? That they don't know better? Or that they have chosen not to know better? That's a, a good question. I don't know. Yeah. Right. I think it, varies, it varies probably from person to person, right? There are some people who just, it makes them feel good to say I'm a Christian, but they don't really
1: take the time to find out if that Right.
0: I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. There was, let's go, Caleb, then Lydia, and then Sean. Right, so did everyone hear Caleb? Caleb's wondering if a part of the problem is that the leaders themselves are blind, right? There's this expectation, and I'm, to be a little bit self-critical, I don't want to just be negative because there's many things about my growing up that I'm very proud of and very thankful for, but that is, I was actually in conversation with someone about that this last week. Why is that so common, particularly among those of us who come from a Mennonite background? That's actually in our DNA that it's historically almost to be preferred the less education a minister has. Because that shows he's authentic and he's genuine. And so it's almost a a virtue to be prized if you've never taken a course in systematic theology. That means you almost have a, a foot up. Okay there's this expression in low german some of the older people oh, you know it the more learned you are the more confused you get and of course that's finding something true some people go to some crazy liberal arts college and they do come back confused <laughs> okay and people like my grandpa saw that and said okay well this cousin this cousin and this guy they all came back from Pennsylvania and they came back very liberal seminary's bad Logical conclusion, I think wrong. (laughs) Bad seminaries are bad. Good seminaries are good. (laughs) Right? Um, So I I agree. There is a a tremendous lack of precision, I think, in our teaching and preaching. And it's creating confused Christians that that don't know how to work through moral issues. Uh, So I would agree fully with that. I don't think you need a Masters of Divinity to be a preacher, But I don't think it's either a badge of honor that you've never formally learned something in a rigorous setting. I, I think that there's a guardrail there for sure. Can everyone understand and appreciate what Caleb just said? Is there some truth to that? And he's not a pastor you need you need several things to go into ministry this is a bit scary but you need there's a couple things you need an internal call martin lloyd jones said if you can do anything other than preach don't the only men who should ever preach is people who will die inside if they can't get it out so if you don't have that in you you're not a preacher be an electrician we need christian electricians Go do something else if you can. Do anything other than preaching and be happy. So there has to be fire in your bones. Charles Spurgeon said, people come to watch me burn every Sunday. Okay? That's a preacher. That's a preacher's heart. I'm on fire. But then that needs to be guided, because Paul says zeal without knowledge is useless. Right? You just, so if your heart's on fire, but you have no idea where we're going, like, where are you going? I have no idea, but we're sure making great time. Well, that... <laughs> That doesn't help anything either, right? So you need, you need to direct that fire at within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity and in, in, in a way that's helpful for the hearers to do it. And then other people around you need to see that too. So you can't come home from seminary and say, okay, I'm a pastor now. Where's my flock? There needs to be a legitimate calling that people say, yes, we, we want this. Um, so there's an internal call for the pastor a call from a congregation or from a group of people that want this. Uh, and then there has to be some structure to, the, to where this is going. This isn't just some ill-defined beanbag chair that you can shape into whatever. There, there needs to be sound doctrinal guardrails. Okay, um, we were... Lydia, you were next? No? Okay. I maybe saw a phantom hand then. Then, Sean. So you're saying I have to do work when I read my Bible? What? I have to do work when I read my yeah. Bible? I have to think? Oh, man. <laughs> no, like yes, yeah, Sean. Did everyone hear Sean? Because what Sean just touched on here is the very heart of what we want to do here as a church, okay? There's a difference between being a Christian and thinking like a Christian, okay? There's a difference between a Christian school that teaches math and science exactly like everybody else and has chapel in the morning versus a classical Christian approach to education, which is everything starts with Christ, okay? And how do we integrate one coherent worldview, Um, someone who watches this church from a distance uh, told me a few months ago that what we're doing here is like you're telling a narrative. And he caught on. You're you're, you're explaining a story is what you're doing. I said, yes, that's correct. And he saw it and that's correct because we don't have, and I don't know if I'm doing a good job of explaining this. Here's how not to see the world. Here's this compartment of history that is walled off by itself. Touches on nothing else. Here's history in this box. And then here's a box called chemistry. And it's completely autonomous and independent all by itself. Okay? And then here's this box called Christian theology. Here's where we do theology and Bible study. Okay? And then political theory and economics. A Christian worldview says all truth meets at the top. God's world. All truth meets at the top. So God is the source of everything. So if you're going to conceptualize this, think of a pyramid where God is at the top, and then all these fields of study are downstream. And theology is the queen of the sciences. Okay, So God, theology, and then from that, your theology dictates how you view chemistry and immigration and art and history and economic theory. Okay, It's integrated into a coherent worldview. Because the Bible is authoritative on everything it touches, and the Bible, in the words of Cornelius Van Til, touches on absolutely everything. Everything. Okay? There is no sphere in which the Bible is silent. None whatsoever. Okay? Well, yeah, but the Bible doesn't have, you know, economic instructions. Well, not specifically, but it does have a commandment about not stealing, which presupposes private property ownership. Capitalism is a Christian idea. Socialism is evil. Okay? And Christians are not free to disagree on that. Because the Bible doesn't give freedom to disagree on these things. Right? The right of families to own property and conduct their commerce freely is presupposed in a biblical worldview. Okay? So you can't say, well, I'm a Christian over here, but I've got these socialist political leanings. You, you can't do that. Because then you're, you're, your theology is not shaping what you think about something. Right? That that gateway is closed off, and we can't think that way. We want to think an integrated view of the whole world all together. And with that means, historically, Christians have understood this. Theology has been the queen science at every major university. Okay? Harvard, Yale, Princeton, these are all Puritan schools to train ministers. The theology department is the queen, okay, with all these other subgroups, because ministers if they're going to be well-rounded, should understand science and chemistry and history and so forth. But even what do you see in the name university? There's two words in there. What two words do you see in the word university? Uni, unity, one. There's one God at the top of everything that we're going to study here. And diversity. There's multiple fields in which God is displaying his glory. So the university's job is to take all this diverse field of study and unify it under the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. That's why Harvard's motto was, uh, well, it used to be truth, it, it, truth of Christ, now it's just truth, veritas. Okay. They dropped the in Christ part, which means it's going to just turn into utter chaos. And who knows, maybe the big universities will become chaotic one day but (laughs) I'm sure that's a long ways future yet, okay? Historically, we've understood this. The university movement is a Christian movement to unify all fields of study under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that's how we want to think as Christians, okay? It's all of Christ for all of life. There's nothing you can think about over which Christ is not Lord, So what Sean has just said here is incredibly important. We need to take Christ everywhere we go. Everywhere, everywhere. Including space travel? Yes. Yeah. Have dominion. Have dominion. Who's going to be the one to plant First Baptist Church on Jupiter? (laughs) Someone better get to it. Okay? It's part of the dominion mandate. Can we farm Saturn? Well, (laughs) let's find out. Okay? Dominion all the way down. Nothing is untouched by the lordship of jesus christ can we see that vision and so sometimes when some of these back hallway discussions happen here among those people that are holding little noisemakers about classical christian education that's what we're talking about we're talking about training kids this way from the time they're this big not trying to undo 50 years of bad education and then start over and all get frustrated that we didn't learn this faster. Classical Christian education is designed to take little Jane and little David and Reed and start shaping them and molding them to think like Christians about everything from the time they go into kindergarten, to teach them to use the tools of logic and to argue persuasively and to think critically. Okay. That's why there's a vision for classical Christian education, frankly, that's starting to catch on and gain some traction. And we need to do it in the church as well. All of Christ for all of life. Keith. Amen. Isn't it great that we have young guys in their 20s who are leading youth that understand this? Just stop for a minute and think about that. We got young guys like Sean and Keith and Kenan and many others who are serious about getting this and helping you train your kids, okay? Let's not take for granted what the Lord is doing here. Thank you, Keith. And the rest. Anyone else? This is so far from the effectual calling. (laughs) But of course it's not because Christian thought is integrated. So it's not at all separate. Let's do one more. Okay, so God calls effectually by his word and spirit those he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And then footnote two, which is Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. Who wants to read that for us? Well, Jeremy, you did one already. Why don't we give one to Jolynn here? Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, whenever you're there. Amen. Okay, that's the whole sweep of redemption right there. We're dead in sin. Okay, dead. Not flailing, looking to grab a life preserver. We're dead. Dead. No desire to come. No desire for the things of God. Hostile to the gospel call. And then, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive okay the fact that you are spiritually alive is a work of God not a work of your will your will is downstream from the work of God okay? so he did this and he did it by again union with Christ this isn't cold and mechanical it's in union with Christ by grace you have been saved and then you're raised up and seated in the heavenly places, again, in union with Christ, with Christ Jesus. This is always personal, this is close, this is warm, it's in Christ, it's with Christ. Okay, so this isn't just a mechanical process, it's a personal, fatherly process of making us alive. Okay, when we look at this from enough different angles and bring in enough different scripture passages, is it starting to shape in your mind how this works? How dead people are made alive and justified by grace through faith? Are we starting to see how this works? I hope. Yeah. Yep. Amen. I think a lot of us don't realize how dead we actually were, especially if we were converted at a young age. Yeah. Jeremy. Was it, was God lying? Yeah. Well, my my inclination would be to say, no, probably, I doubt God was lying. <laughs> yeah. 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 The but then what does that mean? Then you have to flesh out death, and I'm guessing that's where you're going with this. Yep. So in what... In what, sense did they die? In what Right, they're zombies from that point on. Yeah, their bodies are still animated, but spiritually they're dead, and the process of physical death gets started. Um, and that is an important point because no, God was not lying, and we've said this over and over, and I'll say it once more because it's important. Death, biblically defined, does not mean annihilation. Death does not mean the cessation of existence. Death means divorce, death means separation, death means being pulled apart. They did die that day, not physically, but they died spiritually that day. They were alienated from God on that day. They went from God's close friends to being God's enemies on that day. They died. And that also has consequences downstream in the physical world. So the physical process of physical death, which is also not the cessation of existence, but a separation of body and soul, okay, People don't cease to exist at their death. They get divorced from their body at death. Okay? But the soul lives on. Okay? So death is a separation. It's a divorce. It's not the cessation of existence. People exist after their death. Okay? And again, that's why we emphasize a resurrection and not floating away at death. Because the resurrection is the remarriage of body and soul, putting it back to rights. Heaven and earth coming back together the marriage feast of the Lamb. All right, it's 10.14 and we've got potluck, so I want to leave some time to get that. Let's close in prayer and carry on. Lord, thank you for this discussion. I want to thank you most especially this morning for what you're doing here. Lord, I want to thank you that there is a a people that you've called for yourself here that wants to take your word seriously, that wants to uh, go where your word would have us go, that wants to see the amazing in grace. Lord, and I want to thank you for young minds and uh, young families, young men who are helping with the work here, whether that be as a group of elders, whether that be Mike and Carol and Keenan and Keith and... Uh, And those around supporting them as they also are in the work of teaching, training, guiding. Lord, and yet in another sense, all of us are in that work. Every parent is here, uh, every individual uh, is engaged in training and teaching each other and encouraging each other. Lord, and I wanna thank you for what your spirit is doing here. I wanna thank you for making us alive spiritually. I pray that we would walk in the newness of life, that we would not stay friends with our sin. Uh, but that rather we would see it uh, as an enemy of grace and that we would put in the work of putting sin to death, growing in grace, growing in holiness, uh, and then encouraging those around us to do the same, spurring each other on to love and good deeds. Lord, I thank you for this conversation. I want to thank you uh, even for the rabbit trails we go on and the the fruitfulness that we find in those other discussions Lord, thank you for that. And I pray that that would continue. I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we move to corporate worship and then also as we enjoy fellowship over a meal together. Uh, I pray that we would be strengthened, that you would feed us in all these things uh, and that you would be glorified above all else. Thank you for your kindness to us and we pray that you'd be with us the rest of this morning and through the week. We pray this all in the gracious name of the Lord Jesus Christ and amen.